Welcome to this episode of Oberterdicta, the legal and tax podcast from Bloomsbury Professional Ireland, hosted by me, Rachel Sherlock, and Gráinne McMahon. In this episode, we are chatting to barrister Dirin O'Mahony, author of Medical Negligence and Childbirth. I saw how difficult it was for somebody who was injured and harmed through no fault of their own, through somebody else's mistake. I saw how difficult it was for them to get justice, to get answers. And I made the decision then, this is what I want to do. This is solely what I want to do. She talks to us about difficult cases when a child's delivery hasn't gone to plan, as well as the impact of the recent hacking issue with the health service and life as a woman at the bar. It's an insightful conversation with a young female barrister, and we hope you enjoy. Dirin, it's a pleasure to sit down with you today. And can I start with asking you, did you always want to become a lawyer? Thank you. Good morning to both of you. Um, Did I always want to be a lawyer? That is an interesting question. I suppose if I'm honest, the answer is no. I suppose when I was in school, I loved languages, especially English. I loved reading and writing. Um, And I maybe thought that I would have a career in journalism or in media. I could have seen myself behind a news desk or something like that. Um, Definitely didn't think that I would go down the path I've gone down, um, which I absolutely love now. But definitely back then, no, not in a million years. So I sort of think I fell into it in a way. Um, I suppose my father uh, is is a lawyer and law was in the family and they felt it was something I should just put down on the CAO form and they ended up getting the points and sort of falling into it, but not really having that fire in the belly for it. Um, university then I went to UCC which is fantastic university great law faculty but I didn't really immerse myself in it I didn't join any clubs and societies I wasn't you know their typical debating type I sort of did my own thing and then equally when I finished I I sort of fell into King's Inns I just said I, I suppose I'd better get a entry to one of the professions and I remember at the time thinking, actually, I my personality might have been better suited to the role of a solicitor. Um, and again, I, I don't know why, uh, but I just went with King's Inns. I did the bar. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm glad I did everything the way I did. I was, I was young. I went straight from university to King's Inns and down to practicing. I was just turning 23 that summer I started at the bar. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't have it any other way. That's really interesting. And I, I wonder, since you were originally thinking of media or maybe something in languages and then you went into law, how did you end up in the area of medical negligence? Well, again, I'm going to have to credit my father here because he he actually studied medicine before he did law. Um, so he qualified as a doctor. He interned in the Mercy Hospital in Cork. Um, qualified as a barrister in 1975 and then he took silk in 1986 I think like three years before I was even born Um, so he was always doing this kind of work but really it wasn't that Um, people would think you know that's the natural reason I fell into medical negligence but I don't think so Um, I I came down to the bar I was doing personal injuries work Um, I was doing a bit of employment law a little bit of everything Um, But what really uh, gave me an appetite for this 
was, and this is a personal story and it, you know, it's, it's a sad story, but um, I had a very close friend um, who I met around the time I, I had started at the bar and uh, we had been out of touch for, you know, maybe a couple of years and we reconnected and he was very sick. He had cancer. He had a melanoma um, and it was quite advanced. Um, you know, the prognosis was really pretty poor. You know, one thing led to another and I, I directed him towards a solicitor and he ended up bringing a case against the doctor who had removed this suspicious lesion from his left upper arm and never bothered to send it for a biopsy. If he had, our, the expert evidence at the time was that if he had done that, the cancer would have been identified and it could have been treated before it spread to the point that it was terminal. So I wasn't involved in his case, but I was, I suppose, instrumental in starting that process for him. And I was very much intimately involved as a, as a bystander, as, as an observer. I, I remember what that was like for him. And I remember his calls through um, the months, you know, as the case was going on and every step of the way, it was like a delay was being encountered. And, you know, the, the, the other side were just trying to make life difficult. And he actually, you know, he almost thought that they just were waiting for him to die. And um, that sounds terrible, but really that was what his, his experience was. And thankfully, through uh, the grace of, you know, an excellent judge who case managed it and expedited it, it successfully concluded and he was able to enjoy the remainder of his life. Um, he got some monetary compensation. He never got an apology, but he got some money that he could, and he did, he left behind then for for his family when he died. But that really, really impacted upon me. And I, I, I really strongly felt seeing that and sort of being there with him through the process. I felt this is what I want to do. You know, I saw how difficult it was for somebody who was injured and harmed through no fault of their own, through somebody else's mistake. I saw how difficult it was for them to get justice, to get answers. And I made the decision then, like, this is what I want to do. This is solely what I want to do. I don't ever want to work for a defendant. I don't ever want to be the one on the other side of it. I want to work for people who are vulnerable and who need help because I can tell you, and I've been I've been in this sort of nearly nine years now, and this is all I do. It is extremely hard to be a plaintiff in a medical negligence case in Ireland, in anywhere but in Ireland. It is extremely difficult. Um, and so I feel a huge amount of responsibility with the work that I do. Um, it's very rewarding, but it is a tremendous amount of responsibility. Um, for me, it's something, you know, I do every day of the week, but for most people, a legal case like that, it's its a once in a lifetime. It's a once off event. It's everything for them. There was a recent study um, which looked at the medical negligence system in Ireland and the outcome was that the system needs an overhaul. But actually, it looked at the the difficulties that plaintiffs have in taking cases and I wonder if in your experience acting for plaintiffs is very often 
the monetary compensation is the last thing that they're thinking about or probably less down the pecking order that really they want to find justice or maybe an apology. That's, um, it's fascinating. And I could talk about this probably all day, Gornia, if I'm honest, but, you know, it is the case. Nobody, nobody sets out to get injured and nobody sets out to be harmed by a doctor or, you know, going into hospital. Nobody intends for that to happen. And hopefully for most of us, it never will happen, you know, but the reality is that it does. And I think as a modern, caring and progressive society, uh, it behoves us to provide for those people who are injured through somebody else's fault. Um, And many of these people have incapacity and disability, which will be with them for the remainder of their lives. And that could be decades. Um, So the impact of something like this is massive. You know, if I say to you, oh, the impact of a catastrophic injury, like losing a leg, you know, that seems obvious, right? I think people understand that. But what I think people don't understand that as well as getting compensation for the suffering and pain of that, these people need to be compensated for all of the care that they will require for the rest of their lives. And, you know, it is huge. And when you come to work in this area and meet these people, you really see how very expensive it is to be injured. Um, You know, children with disabilities or people who are in serious road traffic accidents and end up paralyzed, you know, they will need physiotherapy, occupational therapy, Uh, They might need speech and language therapy, hydrotherapy, hypotherapy. They need care, nursing care at home, two carers sometimes, maybe even three. Um, Their homes need to be adapted. Uh, They need aids and appliances. It goes on and on and on. And all of that adds up. It runs up into millions. And, and, And that is why people see these big headlines and think, oh, gosh, this person got a windfall. But that's not the case. I mean, I always say nobody wins compensation. Um, you know, nobody who's suffering because of another person's wrongdoing would consider themselves a winner. You know, there are no winners. Um, so there's a lot of talk about reforming the system, yes. But what I would say is we clearly have a system that works and it works well because I don't. I think you'd struggle to come across a person who's had a case and who felt that it wasn't, you know, that they got too much. No, you know, nobody's ever said that. People, people will never feel overcompensated. And I think until you, until you experience it and live it, and, and even I haven't. Um, I just have the the privilege of saying that I've met a lot of people who have but until you're really in that you know you'll never know what it's like um so in terms of reforming the system there are things we could do simple things like making uh delays shorter particularly in medical negligence Uh, cases can take years from inception to conclusion I think that if we had earlier mediations um that would be a huge benefit I think that if the defendants, which is, you know, usually the HSC, if they could make earlier admissions and concessions, 
in cases where they've clearly, you know, made errors, um, then that would save an awful lot of cost. It would save an awful lot of time, lawyers' time, courts' time, everybody's time. Um, so it is in everybody's interests uh, that we try to streamline the process and make it easier for people and make it quicker for people. Because the sad reality is that some some actually die waiting for their cases to finish. So what I'll say on reform is, I think we have an excellent judiciary. We have an excellent legal system. Um, clearly, it works. But like everything in life, there is room for improvement. And Therin, when you're settling these cases, and often we see the headlines, you know, big lump sum, but there was no liability or there was no admission of liability from the defendants. How important when you're negotiating these cases, is it usually to the plaintiffs to get an apology? Sometimes it is the only thing motivating people. I mean, I've certainly been involved in settlements where people very often, actually, clients will say when you ask them about money, they say, oh, I don't know. I haven't thought about that or I don't know what this is worth or, you know, I'll be guided by you. It, it isn't really about the money. And that might sound, you know, an easy thing for me to say, but I'm saying it from lived experience. It really isn't about the money because money will never put a person back into the position they were before. You know, and in cases where somebody has died and the bereaved family are suing, it'll never bring the person back. It's only a token. It's just an acknowledgement. Um, and very often what brings people into solicitors in the first place is that they are confused. They're, they are being met with resistance from the hospital or the doctor. They don't have um, an explanation of what went wrong. There isn't adequate communication um, in the aftermath, in the aftermath of, um, you know, a, a poor outcome or a negative event, and they're just seeking answers. And it's very sad, but sometimes they have to come to a solicitor and a barrister and go through the legal process to get answers, you know, to get some kind of closure and some kind of healing, and you know. Apologies are seen more frequently now than they were when I started at the bar. And in certain appropriate cases, yes, the HSC will give an apology where appropriate or a letter of regret, which is often very, very comforting for a plaintiff. Um, so even in a case where they contest liability and it's a full fight, they can still give what's called as well a letter of regret, just acknowledging that the person has had a terrible experience without, without saying, you know, we're responsible for it. Um, and that's, that is a huge driving force, I think, for many, many people, uh, that they come to lawyers for answers. And yes, I do think that an apology in, in, in the right cases can be a deal breaker. Would you like to see um, they're in if they reformed the system that if there is some sort of settlement that kind of an apology or an admission of liability becomes part of that? 
Yes, but I suppose, you know, not in every case, because the other thing is this, like nearly every case I encounter involves a sort of a, a chain or a sequence, like a cascade of events. So usually there isn't one end player who has been responsible for the bad outcome. Um, and, you know, I feel as somebody practicing in this area that um, I'm anti-doctor, anti-hospital. I'm not at all. We have some of the best doctors in the world, the most compassionate and the most skilled medical professions here in Ireland are great people. And when something happens, it's not the individual's fault, usually. Um, you know, it's 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 a systems error. Um, and there are many players involved there. And when it comes to uh, settling the case, it's the state claims agency who indemnify any doctor working in the public health system. So we don't even personally sue doctors or nurses, we're just suing the HSE and any compensation paid is paid by the state claims agency. So, you know, it's not, it's, it's not a personal attack on any individual per se. And I'm not here to pillory or uh, vilify any individual doctor who's been a part of a terrible um, situation for somebody, not at all. Um, it's it's about um, acknowledging when things go wrong and learning from mistakes. And I think that this is how medical negligence litigation can be a force for good because uh, it can actually drive change by forcing the institution, the HSE, to look at what's happened rather than sweeping it under the carpet to actually analyze what has happened, um, ask why, why and why again, uh, and, and, and implement change so that the same things don't recur. Um, you know, there were a lot of things over the last decade and longer that uh, controversies, like obviously the cervical check is a recent one, but before that you had the baby deaths in uh, Port Leash, you had all these scandals um, blood transfusion scandals, you know, the Michael Neary scandal where Michael Neary was doing unnecessary hysterectomies. The saddest thing about those is when it's 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 like a recurring theme and the same thing is happening, being allowed to happen over and over and over and over. Um, and this is where I feel with the job we do, we can be, we can be good, <laughs> we can affect change because I see it myself. I, I, I see it, you know, uh, something bad happens. There's a poor outcome. The hospitals now are much more likely to do a systems analysis review. They'll do their own investigation into what happened. They'll, if necessary, make recommendations um, and, you know, make changes to, to ensure that these things don't happen again. And all of that, I think, is is happening more because of, the, um, I won't say the rise in litigation, but because I suppose litig litigants have probably opened their eyes to the things that are going wrong, which they could put a stop to, you know? So uh, I think there's a lot of negativity surrounding 
people who bring cases, but we've got to look at the positive. We really have got to look at the, the positive. And these people are incredibly brave individuals. Um, it's no mean feat to completely expose yourself to your legal team and in court to subject yourself to cross-examination on you know, the most personal aspects of your life. But people do that, you know, and these are strong people. And the, the people who've brought cases in previous years undoubtedly have driven change and improved things for the people who've come after them. And we've got to realise that. And you're speaking there a lot about improvements and uh, the quality of care in Ireland. Obviously, your, your title is childbirth and medical negligence. So maybe could you speak a little bit about Ireland's maternity services and how they measure up uh, to other countries? You know, by and large, I think things are good. And I'll say it again, we've great hospitals, we've great doctors. Um, one of the things I do talk about is I think in Ireland, we still have a sort of um, a stigma maybe surrounding the idea of um, cesarean section. That's one of the problems that I see. The majority of cases that I do where a mother or baby is harmed, these are cases uh, usually involving vaginal deliveries or operative vaginal deliveries uh, with forceps and things like that. And I think that there's an irrational pressure on the hospitals to keep the cesarean section rates very low. And I think it influences clinicians. Society at large probably still has this mistaken, I would say, idea that you have to, you know, you have to labor in pain and you have to go through all that process and you know, it's not the case. Women should have a choice in everything. It's a woman's body. It's a woman's choice. And she needs to be armed with all of the information and all of the pros and cons of the modes of delivery. There's two ways. She needs to be fully equipped with all of the knowledge so that she then can make an informed choice. Because what is really sad is where you meet somebody who has been left with a grievous devastating permanent injury like a third or fourth degree perennial tear which leaves them incontinent for the rest of their lives I see a lot of these cases and the real tragedy is that in most of these cases the women say oh my gosh if I'd only known if I had only been told of this risk I would have had a c-section in a heartbeat and I don't understand how this can keep happening how these absolutely horrendous, horrific uh, injuries, which are completely physically, psychologically and socially debilitating for a woman, can keep on happening. And the women after the event keep saying, well, I wasn't counseled. I wasn't told. I didn't know that if I'd had a C-section, this would have been completely avoidable. That That, that is a, a real issue that I have is, is, the idea around consent and choice and communication in the antenatal period. Are these regular cases where you would have thought there would be no, there was no big warning or there was no big risk and suddenly, like, could you could you maybe delve a little bit more into that? Yeah, well, I suppose what I've mentioned just there is those cases of what we call the obstetric anal sphincter injuries. Um, I have a whole chapter on this in the book and it's it's an, a further extended in the second edition of the book 
they're not spoken about very often. Um, these injuries occur basically when you have a large baby ent- uh, exiting a small pelvis. And what can happen is if a woman is allowed to labor for too long, um, you know, injury can occur to the, the, the muscles and the nerves and everything down there. But in the worst cases, as I said, these women are left with a permanent double incontinence sometimes. And if one of these injuries occurs and isn't detected and properly repaired in time, it's, it's, it's very often too late. Um, so sometimes women will come away from the hospital. Uh, they have their new baby. It's wonderful. They have this you know, symptoms, they don't really know what it is. They might assume that it's a natural consequence of childbirth. Or what's even worse is that their GP or nurse might say that'll resolve itself. And it doesn't. It doesn't. And then eventually, after, you know, sometimes many months, they come to a solicitor and they say, hold on a second, I don't think this is normal. I don't think this is a natural consequence of childbirth. Uh, I'm doubly incontinent. I can't go to work anymore. I've had to give up my job. I can't go out and meet friends. I'm afraid of an accident happening at any time. I've had to give up all my sports. I don't jog anymore. You know, it goes on and on and on and on. This completely ruins a woman's life. And very often that happens because of the use of forceps by junior doctors who may not have the training that their predecessors from decades previous would have had because it's a very complicated thing to do. This is one of the main reasons for these injuries. And again, it goes back to my point. If you do a cesarean section, you eliminate all of that risk. So if you have, you know, a woman with risk factors, like a diabetic of short stature with a big baby, well, then she really should be counseled Uh, during the pregnancy, about the risks of a vaginal delivery and given the option, if she wishes, of having a cesarean. And she makes the choice, you know. They're deprived of the choice. And that is why when the injury occurs, they're coming and saying, I didn't properly consent to this. I wasn't warned about this risk. And if I had been, I would have had the section. This wouldn't have happened. I guess um, we have this thing of too posh to push from, yeah. you know, that's kind of the phrase that goes around. And is there a thing in Ireland where, and I know you mentioned this earlier, where there are they under pressure to have the, the rates low? And also, I suppose, feeding into that, you know, it is way harder to bounce back from a section. Yeah, again, I'll say I agree. I do think there is an irrational pressure coming from somewhere but there is a pressure on hospitals to keep the C-section rates low. I mean, that is just undeniable. It is a fact. Um, I agree with you that there's a stigma surrounding it and all this stuff about too posh to push. I mean, it's it's just nonsense and it's, it's, it's indoctrination, really. But we've got to put it in context as well. And what I say is when people talk about cesarean sections generally, you know, they're factoring in the emergency sections or the crash sections, the ones that happen at 3 a.m. when mum or baby's in serious distress and when the B team are on duty and the consultant isn't around 
And, you know, yeah, they're very dramatic. They're major ordeals. But if you're talking about a planned elective cesarean section done comfortably at, you know, 10 or 11 a.m. on a Tuesday morning with the A-team on duty, everything the way you want it, the risks to mother and baby are actually almost negligible. And, uh, well, of course, there are risks. There are risks of bleeding and infection and all these things for a mother with the wound. But the risks to the baby, I should say, from an elective section are really negligible. Whereas the risks to the baby from an operative vaginal delivery with a baby in distress, those risks are huge. That baby can have any kind of an injury from a, a facial injury from the scalpel to you know, profound brain injury because of starvation of oxygen, which is going to leave them in a wheelchair for the, for the whole of their lives. So people, people talk about caesareans as a whole, and you've got to understand that some of those are emergencies. If you just look at the women who choose to have a vagina delivery and the women who choose to have a section, it's very, very different picture. So put it in context. People talk about the risk. Of course, with a section, you're going into a theater and there's all of that. It's, it's an operation. But you've got to ask, risky for whom? You know, as I've outlined, the risks for the baby of an operative vaginal delivery when a problem is encountered, those risks are huge. Those risks are huge. And for a mother, if she gets one of these third or fourth degree tears, again, it's lifelong consequences. And if you're talking about the cost, and I do think with the HSC cost is an issue, I'd say, well, when do you stop counting? Because, yeah, of course, it's cheaper for everyone to have a natural birth. They come in, they have the baby, they go out. With the C-section, there's all the costs associated with being in an operating theatre and the mum will need, you know, usually a couple of extra nights in hospital. That all costs money. Yes, but when do you stop counting? So if you stop counting there, yeah, it's more expensive to give women cesareans. However, if you consider the duration of the woman's life and if you consider all is going to have to be paid for the rehabilitation and treatment and therapy for a woman with one of these third or fourth degree tear injuries. The cost of that is huge on the health system. And equally for a, a, a child who has a disability or lifelong impairment, it's massive. You know, whether the state is funding that or whether the person brings a case and succeeds and gets compensation from the state claims agency, the cost is huge. So you've got to ask the question, when do you stop counting? And and the final thing I'll say on this is the stigma. You said it's stigma. There is a stigma. And, you know, it comes down to we're in 2021. Women should have a choice in everything regarding their bodies. We have a right to personal integrity and, and autonomy and all of that. I always say, like, what is going to matter in 10 years time? Like, it, it's great to have the idea of having the natural birth and the, you know, relaxing music in the background or the water birth or whatever. Everything's going to be fine. But, you know, you can't you can't assume that's going to be the case. I always say no pregnancy is ever normal except in retrospect. So, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. So are you are you going to fixate on having, you know, the the, the perfect natural birth experience? considering that, you know, danger may arise and 
difficulty may occur with that? Or are you going to say, well, what's going to matter in 10 years time? I think what will matter for me in 10 years time is what kind of a school my child is going to, whether they can attend a mainstream school or they're in a special school or they're completely intellectually disabled, you know, it's thinking long term. And I, I don't think that people are having a balanced and a fair argument about all of this. It comes down to choice. We have a choice in everything else. And this is no different. It's one of the most important, you know, times in a woman's life. And she deserves to exercise choice. And equally, if she is exercising choice in matters and things go wrong, well, then she's not going to have a case for lack of informed consent. So, you know, it's a win-win situation. It's benefiting everybody. I just want to move slightly to a more recent development in terms of the experience of uh, women in Ireland and childbirth. Uh, With the recent restrictions around maternity services with partners being left outside, uh, women left to labour alone, what is your view on that? And could we see cases down the track? Yeah, well, I think everybody's talking about seeing cases down the track. Uh, Maternity services, yeah, like everything, they have been really impacted by COVID-19 and it's terrible. I mean, it it is so sad to see a woman facing into these things alone without her husband or her partner or whoever. But I also think that it's not just maternity services. Uh, this This has been a problem across the board. There isn't going to be this explosion of claims. I mean, I don't foresee that happening. You know, it was a a year like no other. Um, We couldn't have prepared for it. And the HSC, like any organization, it can only do what it is resourced to do and financed to do and, and has the physical manpower to do. And at the end of the day, I suppose something has got to give and maybe their defense to these claims or their justification for it might be, well, it was the lesser of two evils, you know, it was we had to pull somebody off the ward and out of their bed because we had a COVID patient, you know, and it was a balancing of risks. So I think it's going to be very difficult. Um, I don't think that there's going to be this surge in claims. And I also think in terms of claims for people who acquired COVID-19 in hospital or in nursing homes, I think that's going to be very difficult to prove because you and I know like it's been completely everywhere in the community for the last year and a bit. Um, And like in any medical negligence case, you have to establish all of the facts on the balance of probabilities. And I think it might be very difficult to find the appropriate expert who can say yes this COVID-19 case was acquired in the hospital setting. I suppose in some ways, the next thing in some ways has already happened with the the cyber hack on the HSE. Have you been following anything of that? And again, women labouring alone and the instructions being to allow partners in and it not being maybe followed through in certain places. Like, have you been following it up on anything to do with this? Well, this cyber attack is just, it's frightful. It is an atrocious story. 
Um, and it, it really doesn't bear thinking about that there are people out there who would and could do something like this. I have a particular bugbear about electronic medical records because um, actually Cork University Maternity Hospital was one of the first to implement this completely electronic patient health chart. So they, they did away with the handwritten records of old. And a couple of years ago, they brought in everything as computer based and computer retained. As a lay person or a non-medical person um, looking at a woman's notes, they are absolutely impossible to follow. Um, it's, it's so difficult even for an expert to reconstruct the facts and come up with a narrative because well, it's hard to explain, but the electronic records, one expert described them as computerized gobbledygook. Uh, they're just illegible uh, and unintelligible to those who are not familiar with the system. It's They do actually make life very difficult for plaintiffs because a plaintiff gets her records, they bring them to a solicitor, barrister looks at them, expert looks at them, you know, and it's almost impossible when you don't have, for, ex for example, a handwritten note of the delivery and you don't have handwritten nursing notes you just have pages and pages with numbers and codes on them. It is impossible. It's impossible to reconstruct the facts. And, and, and um, it's making life very difficult for people to bring a case. And also for coroners at inquest, that's another thing. I'm quite sure the coroners around the country have experienced this problem. It's making their life very difficult too. So... The sad thing about the cyber attack is if the hospitals had kept paper notes instead of or as well as the computerized notes, we wouldn't perhaps have been thrown into the chaos that we have been for the last few weeks. Electronic medical records from the point of view of a lawyer and somebody trying to help a person get justice, they're a nightmare. Another block in the road they're in for someone that's thinking of taking a case. Could we talk a little bit about some of the cases that you've been involved in? Of Obviously not going into specifics, but you were involved in a recent high profile case that was in the papers where a man was awarded 1.25 million over the death of his wife. Now, it took a long time to get to court, but I wonder if you could speak generally about the case without going into specifics. It was a horrendous case, but and, and I have similar cases like that myself um, coming up. Uh, they're in the pipeline. You know, that particular case you referenced, uh, the death occurred a number of years ago. It took a long time to get to court. The payout or the, 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 the settlement money was... 1.25 million but what I think people have to bear in mind is that that was just an isolated case every case turns on its own facts some of the hardest cases that I deal with are these cases where somebody has died I mean a maternal death like that is thankfully vanishingly rare nowadays and one of the most astonishing features I think of these cases is that there's a statutory cap on the amount of damages that can be recovered by the deceased person's family 
for what's called salasium in law. It's it's the mental distress or the, the tear money. And that's that's capped uh, under the legislation. It's capped at 35,000 euros for everybody. So if your brother or sister or your aunt or granny dies, a maximum of 35,000 euros can be awarded to compensate for the mental distress of everybody. And that's to be apportioned amongst all of the dependents. So it would seem quite low. It's very low. I mean, yeah. And the thing is, it's it's not even, it's not compensation. It's literally an acknowledgement of grief. That's all it is. Mm. And, you know, it sounds dispassionate, but this is what we have to say to people. It is just an acknowledgement of their grief because you cannot put a price on the avoidable loss of a life. It's just not possible. Um, so it's 35,000 euros at the moment, even if it were 3 million, you couldn't, you, you can't put a price on that kind of thing. But in addition to that, when somebody dies, the family then may have a claim for uh, a loss of financial dependency. So for example, in the case you mentioned, um, that woman left behind a young child and very often they do leave behind children. And so when you see the bigger award, um, the rest of that money is going to provide for them, you know, until they reach their majority. Uh, it's money to assist them in their lives in a way that the parent who has died would have been able to had they not died. But when you're actually looking at the compensation for the suffering and the loss and the pain itself, it's 35,000 euros. I mean, it is, it is incredible. And Darren, I know you've spoken about the issues to do with labour and the um, impact that they can have on, on babies in distress during labour, but maybe you could speak about a specific case involving a lack of intervention in labour where the child was left with a profound lifelong disability, cerebral palsy, which is sadly a recurring theme. The cases are very high stakes because the lifetime care costs for a child with a serious disability like that are, as I've said, huge. They're, they're very, very high. Cerebral palsy is, is a very common cause of disability in children. But just because a child has cerebral palsy, it doesn't mean that it's through anybody's fault. That's the difficult thing to explain. But the cause of cerebral palsy itself is usually asphyxia. It's, it's the lack of oxygen to the brain. As lawyers, we need to be able to prove that something happened usually in the hours just before or just after the child was born in order to be able to link it to negligence. So they're very, very complicated cases. They are fraught with difficulties on, on the causation side of things because as I said, not every cerebral palsy is actionable. I think, is it something like nine out of 10 cases aren't? It's, 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 it's like one in 10 or maybe one in 12 even uh, cerebral palsy cases uh, arise because of negligence and, and are actionable. And as lawyers, we need to engage with a number of experts, uh, obstetric, neonatology, um, neuroradiology, 
pediatric neurologists and we need to uh, look at the timeline around the lead up to the birth and the aftermath and look for certain hallmarks. And if we're able to show on balance of probabilities that the injury occurred around that time, around the time of the birth and not say very early on in labor when there was nothing that anybody could have done. But if we can establish it happened around the time there was an opportunity to intervene, like that there was an abnormal CTG tracing that was not identified and not acted upon. If we can prove that, then we have a very good chance of, you know, successfully mounting the case for the child. And as I said, the costs here can run into mega millions. And that is why the stakes are so high. And uh, it's, 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 it's really sad. But again, it's one of these things you see people commenting on the size of awards being made. And what they don't understand is that money isn't there for the benefit of the child and, you know, to give them a holiday that they want or anything. Most of that money is money that's going to be used to pay for all of the support that they'll need for the rest of their lives. Darren, can I, you said there that only one in 10 are actionable. Could you explain that? Well, yeah, what I mean by that is that there are many causes for uh, cerebral palsy. Like it could be a, a stroke. Stroke is one. Um, meningitis, intrauterine infection, intracranial hemorrhage, you know, genetics, all sorts of things play a part. So it's only in those cases really where we're able to show that there was an opportunity for the doctors and the midwives to intervene um, and do something differently that the case will succeed. Uh, so if, for example, the defendant can come along and show evidence of the fact that an event occurred very early on in the woman's pregnancy, they'll say, well, look, we're not responsible for that. This happened at an early stage, it wasn't through anyone's fault. Uh, it, it just happened. There was nothing we could do. Uh, you know, then then there will be no case. So it's 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 hard. I suppose it's very difficult for people to understand that not every cerebral palsy case will succeed. And there have been reported judgments in the in the past and the recent past. With, you know, cases which have ran for weeks and weeks and weeks and lost. And it comes back to the stakes being so high. These cases cost so much to investigate and they cost so much to run. That's why it's difficult for plaintiffs, you know. The the defence teams who act for the HSC, they have, they're doing this all the time. They have all the money. They have all the resources. They have all the intellectual know-how. They're, you know... They have access to the doctors themselves and their notes and contrast that then with the plaintiff who, you know, whose family may be of limited understanding, you know, may not be doctors themselves. They don't, they don't understand these things. They might be of limited financial means um, and they have to pay for all of these medical liability reports before the case will even get off the ground. Uh, it's very, very difficult. And it comes back to my point about, um, you know, it is not easy to be a plaintiff. And it's not easy, you know, imagine being a mum with 
a child two or three years of age with this horrendous, terrible, permanent lifelong disability um, and having to go about and set about investigating that and trying to get trying to get some money to support her child for the rest of his or her life um, and knowing that it is it is going to be extremely difficult. And that is why it's so important that these people have access to specialist solicitors and barristers. And it, this is why I wrote the book, you know, this is why I wrote the book because I came along and I saw that there were these very complex, complicated cases, which were, again, high stakes, and they were going to have a very serious impact on the people involved and their their lives into the future. And I saw a gap in knowledge um, and an opening. Uh, and that's why I did, that's why I had the idea for the book. I wanted to be able to give a little bit of help to the lawyers who are you know, entrusted with dealing with these very important cases, but also parents. And that's the lovely thing. I've had feedback from clients and solicitors have said that their clients have read my book, um, bought it, or they've asked for a copy of it and they've, they've read it and they have found it useful, you know, so it's, it's a legal textbook, but I think that it has actually benefited people outside of the law too you know and that's very special for me the centenary is coming up of when the first two female barristers came to the bar I know you have been outspoken about the bar not being female friendly could you speak just a little bit about that women uh, make up over half the world's population and potential and you know, I, was, it must be said that we've made great strides to improve things for women in the profession, but there is a lot more that we can do. Um, Avril Deverell and Frances Kyle were two women called to the bar in 1921, along with 18 male counterparts. And that's 100 years ago this year. Uh, that, at, you know, at the time was absolutely these women were trailblazers and that story made headlines from dublin all the way to london belfast new york and even as far as india actually um but they they paved the way for the people that came after them and the people like me um so i think that it's hard for women to stay at the bar i would say i think that you know we have an equal number of women gaining entry to the profession and starting off. Um, I also must point out that now we have some of the most impressive uh, legal practitioners in Ireland are female, um, and that goes from judges, to academics, solicitors, barristers, right across the board, uh, which is wonderful because you know, for, for younger women, they need to see that, you know, you you know, if you can't see it, you can't be it. And um, so it is great that we have such strong women in these positions nowadays. But in terms of the bar, I think that women don't seem to be sticking around in the same way that the men do. Because if you look at the number of women who take silk and who are senior council members of the inner bar, that there are far fewer women than men. 
that is an unfortunate reality. There must be a reason for that. Um, we need to do more to find out what the reason for that is. And we need to work more towards improving things so that we can keep this pool of really talented and passionate women who are fantastic at what they do. You know, they're just as good as we are just as good as men. And then we just have our last of all quick fire round. Um, so first of all, you mentioned maybe already that you did a lot of writing. So how did you survive lockdown? Well, I survived lockdown by bringing the book up to date. <laughs> it was a sort of a natural progression for me from March 2020, you know, rushing around the four courts to suddenly being at home alone with a laptop working remotely. Uh, but I was very fortunate with the line of work that I'm in. It didn't really impact me in any real way, whereas I feel it definitely did for some other colleagues. I can't say I really did anything exciting. I did buy a sewing machine. I, I wanted to be able to kind of mend things and take up hems and so on. So like I have this abundance now of uh, handkerchiefs and I'm giving them out to everybody if anyone wants some lovely handkerchiefs I'm I'm a, I'm a pro at making those but I haven't quite mastered the dressmaking yet uh, yet but that's 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 another project but um so I've done a bit of sewing and really just uh, life went on as normal you know um, can you tell us the last time you had a good belly laugh uh, probably the last time I watched one of my favorite funny movies like some like it hot um, and just had a laugh watching Jack Lemon, you know, something like that. Yeah. yeah. That's great. Uh, can you tell us either your favorite book or the book you're reading? My favorite book? That's a difficult question. There are so many. Well, I'd have to say my favorite authors would be the Bronte sisters, Charlotte, Emily and Anne Bronte. They all had remarkable books and they all wrote under the pseudonyms. Uh, Charlotte was Kerr, Emily was Ellis and I think Anne was Acton Bell because they couldn't of course get published as women so they had to pretend to be men but uh, I love Wuthering Heights but I think if I had to tell you my all-time favorite book I would go with Jane Eyre because it was the first classic I read and it's an amazing book and uh, I'm going to go and reread it actually. Last question three things that you would bring to a desert island. It's very tough. Can I say my phone? Is that allowed on a desert island? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, I'm going with the we'll, we'll even give you a charger for it. Thank you. I definitely need that because I need to stay up to date with what's going on in the world. And I need to stay in touch with all of the people I love. So I'm taking my phone. Um, <laughs> the second thing that I would have is sunscreen. That's my second thing. You know, wherever I am indoors, rainy weather I've got my SPF on so yeah I'm taking sunscreen to the desert island definitely my third thing would be I think I'm going to have to go with tea not only would it give me something to do sipping the tea but also I could keep my mind occupied by identifying symbols and interpreting messages in the tea leaves and in the configurations of those leaves in the mug. And as a matter of interest, how do you drink your tea? Are you a lady that has loads of milk or are you? No, no. this is very controversial, very controversial, but I like a really strong cup of tea. Don't come near me if it's weak. 
and a dash of milk. And the thing is, I like to drink oat milk if I'm out and it's only cow's milk on offer. I'm sorry, I know this is controversial. I don't like milk and tea. So I will opt for a herbal tea. But if I'm here at home and I've access to what I want, it's a good, strong mug of builder's style Barry's tea and um, a dash of uh, non-cow's milk. Lovely. And no sugar. Therein, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. I think, Rachel, you've really enjoyed it as well. Thank you um, so much. This is great. I've really enjoyed it too. Wonderful. And we'll look forward to our next episode. And thanks again so much, Darren, for talking with us. That's it for this episode of Oberta Dicta. We have really enjoyed speaking to Darren O'Mahony and her book, Medical Negligence and Childbirth, is available from bloomsbury.com and also for subscribers to the Medical Law Service on BPRO. Talk to you again soon.